Hello, and welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 210th episode, our guest is Frank Vogel. Frank Vogel is the co-founder of one of the leading global organizations fighting corruption, Transparency International, and the chairman of another, the Partnership for Transparency Fund. He teaches at Georgetown University, writes regular articles on corruption for The Globalist, and lectures extensively. As a former foreign correspondent for Reuters and the Times of London, Vogel reported in the 1970s on corruption. In the 1980s, as the World Bank's chief spokesman, he saw the impact of government corruption in dozens of developing countries. For 25 years, he ran a public relations firm that concentrated on international finance and economic policy. His last book was Waging War on Corruption, Inside the Movement Fighting the Abuse of Power, published by Roman and Littlefield. Frank is a former international journalist, senior World Bank official, and he owned and managed an international public relations firm for 25 years specializing in economics and finance. His new book, The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption Endangering Our Democracy was published November 15, 2021 by Roman and Littlefield Publishers. And now on to the show. I'm really happy that you're here. And just uh, if you could, for for my listeners, if you could go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself for people that don't know who you are. Yes, of course. Uh, Good evening. Hello, uh, wherever you are. I'm Frank Vogel. I'm um, originally British, although I've been an American citizen for many years. I came here as an international journalist for the Times of London, covering Watergate and numerous US presidents afterwards. I worked for the World Bank. I then helped to create Transparency International, which is the first global uh, international anti-corruption non-for-profit organization We now operate in 100 countries. We're the largest organization of this kind. And I also uh, lecture at Georgetown University about corruption and security. And I write books and articles and do various other things as well. Yeah, so you see, you really don't have a lot going on, it sounds like. (laughs) Very, very lazy. Um, No, that's amazing. Yeah, that's quite a resume. And uh, wow, so much I could ask you about there. Um, What was, uh, so when did you, you came to America in the the early 70s, I guess? I came in early 1974. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And how did you find America when you, when you got here? Was it as you imagined? What, what, What surprised you? In total turmoil. I mean, this Richard Nixon was still in the White House. Wow. Uh, It would be another five months before he was forced to resign. Uh, As a reporter, you could imagine, um, I was working in a bureau with colleagues who knew a lot more about American politics than I will ever know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was an incredibly exciting time. And then I had the wonderful opportunity as a as a reporter covering all of North America to travel very extensively in this country to learn a lot about the people of this country to learn about its diversity to learn that generalizations made in Washington especially inside the Washington Beltway are almost always wrong 
Yeah. And uh, well, yeah, what a time to get here, I'm sure. Um, so that must have been a very interesting experience. But um, what what did your uh, you, you kind of said you, you moved into working for the World Bank, right? How did that transition happen? I had been uh, always interested in international economics and international development and very challenged uh, to th- at that time about why was it that we could send a man to the moon, we could do incredible uh, things scientifically, but we couldn't end world hunger. And after eight years as a reporter, foreign correspondent here in Washington, DC, uh, the World Bank got a new president and he knew about my interest in developing countries. And he asked me to join him as the bank's communications director and uh, chief spokesman for the bank. And it struck me as just a fantastic opportunity to travel the world. The World Bank is the world's largest development agency. And in the position I had, uh, I could go anywhere and learn an awful lot. And, and I did. And it was exciting. Yeah. Well, that's always a, a interesting transition for a journalist to, to go from one side to the other. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, um, very much so. Although yeah. I was, you know, but I went into into government, into the into public service, right? And um, felt I was trying to do good things. Mm-hmm. Right now, um, for the purposes of this book, though, when did you start becoming aware of the things you talk about—the large-scale corruption? You know, uh, the money laundering, all that kind of stuff—that just seems so massive. Uh, the way you describe it. When did you encounter that in your in your professional life? Well, let's go back in history. Mm-hmm. One of the things, one of the sort of sideshows of Watergate was a organization called CREEP, the Committee oh, yeah. to Re-elect the President. Uh-huh. And it had to get money. And it got money illegally uh, from a lot of corporations. And after Watergate, various hearings were started uh, in Congress that first looked at campaign financing and the original campaign financing reforms came in those hearings and about the corruption that had been involved in money and politics at that time. And at the same time, they started to investigate American corporations that were bribing foreign government officials because there was no law in the US that said that was illegal. And I followed those hearings a lot. I went to interview a lot of the corporate leaders in this country who quite openly said, yes, we bribe foreign government officials because that's how we get business. And that told me two things. One, this was wrong. This isn't the way capitalism and free markets are meant to work. And two, Um, following the money is an old journalistic maxim, which when it is applied to corruption is absolutely critical. And I've been following the money ever since. And when I traveled the world for the World Bank, I would go to so many countries where people would say to me, you know, our life could be so much better if our government wasn't stealing so much. And so I learned a lot firsthand in many countries 
about kleptocracy, about governments stealing from their people. And it, after I left the bank in 1990, um, a friend of mine who ran the World Bank's office in East Africa said to me, we got to do something about this. There's no reason why good money being used for development purposes is getting stolen and leaving people in poverty. These are mm -hmm. money for good projects. And that's why we started this anti-corruption group that has grown and grown and um, does marvelous things in many countries today. Mm -hmm. And then, <laughs> just to add, if I may, and then I started to realize more and more a lot of this money cannot be invested in the countries where it's stolen. That the kleptocrats, the Putins of this world, don't want to keep their money in their home country. They don't think it's safe. They need to put it into our country, into Manhattan real estate, into farming across the United States, into investments of all kinds here. And to do that, they need people to help them. And who are the launderers of this cash? I call them, as the title of my book says, the enablers. The bankers, the lawyers, the real estate brokers, the auditors on Wall Street, in the city of London, in the financial area of Toronto, and in other major financial centers. They are aiding and abetting criminal government leaders around the world and a lot of that dirty money is flowing into our country. Yeah. I, think that's wrong. I think that's wrong as well. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's so interesting what you talk about in the terms of these banks. And uh, you kind of you, you mentioned a bank that uh, I do my banking with, frankly, in the book, <laughs> like a lot of people. I'm not going to say which one. I don't want them to <laughs> probably listening right now for all I know. Um, anyway, uh, just these giant banks uh, and when they're caught doing this, laundering this money, hiding these investments, whatever, uh, they're like, oh, we rogue employees. We had no idea. It couldn't have been us. I don't know. Like you, 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 you've spent time, you talk about with the heads of these banks, right? But how culpable are they? Are these things just too big to even like keep track of if, if, if literally that can happen? Or are, are they more, is it something more like where they're more hands-on with it? Um. It's a very good question. If you look at the size of some of these big banks, you know, the total amount of assets under management of JP Morgan Chase, which is the largest bank in the United States, the total assets are bigger than the gross national product of almost every country in the world. Amazing. They are twice as big as the GDP, for example, of Russia. Mm. So these are enormous enterprises and they're into many different operations. And so I believe in some cases they are unmanageable and you can get rogue employees doing things that are criminal. However, having said that, there are a whole series of cases and I name names and I discuss these cases in my book, which are so big that it is simply silly to suggest that the top executives didn't have a good sense of what was going on. And last year, after Goldman Sachs, a very big bank indeed, had settled 
with various justice authorities, including the US Department of Justice, a whole series of money laundering and bribery uh, cases. And it paid fines of upwards of $4 billion. It issued a statement and the board of directors said, we do not believe that the top management was directly responsible for this criminal activity. However, the activity is not consistent with our values. And therefore we are gonna claw back $100 million in compensation from the chairman and chief operating officer of the bank today and their immediate predecessors uh, who had retired from the bank, uh, such as Gary Cohn, who was um, the chief operating officer for many years of Goldman and then went into the Donald Trump White House as an economic advisor. Now, the fact that they clawed that money back and the fact that they issued a statement like that is, is pretty remarkable. It's pretty unprecedented, but it does show a recognition really that they knew a lot about what had actually been taking place. And after all, this involved uh, bond issues that that bank managed for over $6 billion for the government of Malaysia of which four and a half billion was stolen. L very large sums of money. Mm -hmm. But the fines are paid by the companies. And, you know, that sounds, that is a lot of money, $4 billion is, but how, what percentage of their, you know, annual revenues was that? I, was that a lot, a little? I mean, was that like a serious, does that really hurt? Is that a slap well, on the wrist or? That, that's that's such an important question and I, I I believe it's a crucial it's really the central question what uh, and to put it a different way what are the disincentives for these banks to keep on doing this stuff well frankly the chairman and the chief operating officers or those senior executives of these banks when they get caught they are never personally prosecuted second, right. second of all, they are never fired by their board of directors for the positions. And third of all, when you see the repeat offenders and some of these biggest banks keep on doing it and doing it and doing it, you have to conclude the fines are just the cost of doing business. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to this clawback of this 100 million uh, of compensation to the top and former executives of Goldman, it was only a few months later the Goldman made record profits. And so quite recently, they announced a super, super big bonus for the chairman. So probably the amount he lost last year regarding this money laundering stuff, his compensation, well, he can forget about it because he's been more than doubly recompensated since. Mm -hmm. And the shareholders, they don't care. Uh, Goldman's profits have kept on soaring. The share price is what, 50, 60 percent higher higher today than when they paid the fine a year ago. So mm -hmm. they don't seem to be bothered, but the people, but the poor people of Malaysia for whom that money originally, those bonuses were originally was designated to support development in Malaysia for anti-poverty programs. Those are the victims. They've lost out. Uh, they've suffered greatly. 
the former prime minister of Malaysia who was involved in the schemes that stole the money, he's been sentenced to 12 years in prison and his, uh, he appealed the court verdict and the Supreme Court of Malaysia has upheld the verdict and he'll go to prison. But none of these bankers do. They have nothing to fear. Well, nobody went to jail for the 2008 thing, right? That was... It's, and it's the same culture. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, if we can get away with this and just pay fines and pursue, you know, acts that may even be illegal, but that boost short-term profits, and short-term profits means bigger compensation for the, for the bankers, the real estate brokers, and all these other enabling organizations, then fine. And so just as we saw the subprime mortgage catastrophe with all the consequences of how many people that really hurt across this country and across the world. So similarly, so much of this money laundering uh, has victims as well. And it's the same type of culture that is producing these kinds of activities. Greed. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, a fine, if they can pay it, is just legal for rich people. Basically, I mean, if, if all you have to do is pay a nominal fine, you're right. It's just the cost of doing business. It's like, and, okay. As, but as you said, the fine is being paid by the corporation. It's not being paid yeah, by the Yeah, right, right. Exactly. And they're still getting and their bonus. And only two sort of mid-level people at Goldman Sachs have been prosecuted, uh, personally prosecuted because of this case. Mm. Um, but that's just one case. And, you know, you have to think it's... It affects every American citizen. Uh, if you go to many cities in this country now, there are pieces of real estate, usually the best pieces, mm -hmm. that have been bought uh, by shell companies, basically, by companies we don't know the true owners. They may very well be criminals, or they may be foreign kleptocrats or friends of these foreign kleptocrats who've laundered the cash into this country and bought real estate. And it has pushed up the housing prices enormously. Mm -hmm. And local citizens and local residents very often are being priced out of the market. And if you go to Manhattan or you go to London or you go to Vancouver, you find so many houses and so many condos that are empty. Nobody's yep. there. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, the house prices have gone through the roof. So... There, too, we see uh, direct consequences of this kind of money laundering. Yeah. Well, and I, not to jump too far ahead here, but like you said, this is like another problem that we have in the art world, right? <laughs> the art world is perfect for corruption and money laundering. It's the most secret of all kinds of high-priced luxury investment uh, areas you could think of. Like who's, but who's, who's buying that banana tape to the wall? It's, it's the, <laughs> who knows who that is? You know? <laughs> well, there's no, there's no legal requirement on the art dealer mm -hmm. to find out where the money comes from that buys that uh, banana on the wall. And there is no legal requirement uh, on, the, on the seller of the art to divulge how he even got the art. Mm -hmm. And there are warehouses 
just outside of Geneva and outside of Monte Carlo in so-called duty-free zones that are absolutely jam-packed full of art. I'm talking very valuable art. Nobody really knows who owns the stuff. I mean, the individual lawyers and their representatives of these rich guys know. And why is it stuck there? It's because it's just another way of laundering the cash. Um, these oligarchs, despite having palaces, don't have enough walls to put all the art that they bought uh, through Christie's and Sotheby's and these other big auction houses. Um, but it's a way of laundering their cash. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we see the same in the jewelry business, the high-end jewelry business. Right. Um, and, but don't forget, we are talking such enormous amounts of laundered money today that you couldn't put it all in real estate or you couldn't put it all in fine art. The vast majority of this money is going into the stock market or the bond market and into markets which have a capacity to absorb uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of this dirty cash every year. Mm. Um, and that is very, very disconcerting because it adds a level of instability potentially to, to the core financial markets that are so important for the American and in fact, the world economy. Mm -hmm. How much do you worry about cryptocurrency? Uh, I don't worry about it very much in this particular context. No, um, it seems like a really good way to hide stolen money, right? Well, you're right. But um, uh, my focus has been much more on government criminals, the kleptocrats, ah. the people who steal from their people, rather than on organized crime. I see. Although I must tell you, all of the biggest kleptocrats work with organized crime. I mean, right. So, <laughs> so that's a given. Sure. However... What is it that the kleptocrat really wants with his money? He wants to get it out of his country. He wants it to be invested secretly and safely. Mm -hmm. And that means that he is very unlikely to go into something as volatile as a cryptocurrency. Now, this could change. But I've talked to a friend of the FBI who said to me, at the moment, at least, these cryptocurrency markets are incredibly volatile. The price jumps up and down every day by huge amounts. Once those markets stabilize, then I think they would be perfect vehicles for the oligarchs and the kleptocrats. But why should they bother to take the risks for secrecy there when then they can get all the secrecy they like in the present system? in buying real estate or gold or art or what have you, or securities, because the enforcement of our anti-money laundering laws is pathetic. The regulation of the banks is terribly weak and the lack of law covering so many parts of the operations of these shell holding companies that mask the true owners of these assets here, um, are also so weak that the present system is just fine for the kleptocrats. Why should they take 
the investment risk of getting into very volatile investments like cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. Right. If we talk in a couple of years' time, it may be different. Right. Markets may be more mature. But I'm just well, didn't the mayor of New York City say he wants to accept his uh, pay in crypto or something? Like it's, I don't know. It's give it a couple of years. We'll see. <laughs> exactly. But right now, the. My, my, the best information I have is that this is not a big area, but the FBI is looking very hard at cryptocurrencies, much mm -hmm. more in terms of organized crime. Um, and uh, that's an area I, I, I haven't specialized in. Gotcha. Um, well, let's talk about the regulators. Who's watching this or not, <laughs> or should be, but isn't? <laughs> well, First of all, let's give, let me give you an example. Uh, over several years, uh, ending in about 2017, $235 billion went, through, went from Russia and its neighboring countries, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, through a tiny branch bank in the country of Estonia in the Baltics, the branch bank belonged to Danske Bank, which is the biggest bank in Denmark, uh, but it's not a big bank by global standards. And this incredibly large amount of money flowed through this Estonian branch of Danske Bank and then onto the UK and elsewhere without any regulator blowing the whistle on it. Now, 235 billion is far bigger than the total economy of Estonia. Mm. And you'd say, where were the regulators? What, where were the banking supervisors in Estonia? Where were the banking supervisors in Denmark? Come on, this is a huge amount of money. How can you miss it? And the truth is, this only came to light because a whistleblower decided this was just terrible. And so a young man working in the Danske Bank office in Estonia went public and said massive money laundering is going on in, through this operation. And then he blew the lid on Danske Bank and all the rest. So where were the regulators? They were asleep or they were paid off or you, you name it. Now, in this country, the regulators, I think, are honest. I think they do, they're diligent, but there's not nearly enough of them. And the scale of the operations they have to try to monitor are absolutely massive, given the resources that our regulatory authorities actually have. Uh, we are talking about trillions of dollars, legitimate money, and of course, including some illegal money, flowing through the global banking system literally every week. Mm. And you need incredibly sophisticated artificial intelligence systems to really monitor where that money is going, who it belongs to, and so on. So uh, our regulatory authorities are not equipped to deal with the scale and the technology involved today in global finance, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And if they were better equipped, we would have far more cases like the Goldman Sachs case because Goldman Sachs was unlucky, got caught. Um, but there are many other dirty deals that are done probably every day that, do, that slip by, that slip through. 
Mm -hmm. And finally, on your question about where are the regulators, the subprime mortgage crisis, this money laundering crisis, and it is a crisis because the scale has become so big, all happens because we have had a basic regulatory mentality in this country that says markets correct themselves, markets look after themselves. We can trust the banks to do the right thing. And just to make sure we have that sort of regulatory culture, the banks and the real estate firms and other, others involved in the financial community spend huge amounts on campaign finance, huge amounts on lobbying, huge amounts of time by their CEOs in networking with politically influential people. And they do all that to ensure that we have a very weak regulatory system that allows them enormous freedom to operate. Yeah, and there's so it's even- politics. It's yeah. money in politics. Right. Well, and people, there's a revolving door a lot of times, like you say in the book, you know, between government and, you know, these people they're supposed to be monitoring or regulating or now they're lobbying for them or whatever, you know, now that they're out of office. So, I mean, uh, how, I mean just no. to give you an example, I mean, how could you remember Bernie Madoff? Sure. How could he have got away with it for years and years and years? And mm -hmm. some people said, well, there were people at the Securities and Exchange Commission who should have been regulating him, who were constantly looking for much better paying jobs on Wall Street <laughs> and didn't want to rock the boat. I mean, you right. know, that's your revolving door mm -hmm. portion. But, exactly. But I think, you know, again, not to get too much ahead of ourselves, but I think it's very important to understand, at least this is the reason I wrote the book, that the more of this kind of money laundering we permit, and in fact, aid and abet, the richer these kleptocrats, these authoritarians become, the more self-confident they become, the more able they are to do things that disrupt our own democracy, like all of the Russian interference in the last two elections here, the more they are able to deploy resources to steal our technology as the Chinese have been doing for a long time. And therefore, there is a direct link between this corruption, this money laundering today, 2022, and the stability of democracy and indeed our security. Mm -hmm. And those links, in other words, the political link to the financial uh, goings on and very dirty goings on, I think is central to an understanding of why this is important. Mm -hmm. One thing I wanted to talk about was how they're even stealing when there's a lot of debt. Um, you know, like the fact that they, you know, Greece... For example, you talk about, well, just explain what happened in Greece for people that don't know that story, I guess. Well, a large part of my book, as you know, is about illicit finance. It's the money mm -hmm. stolen by the governments from their people. But there is an enormous market in the world called the sovereign bond market, where governments can borrow money uh, from international investors, 
such as pension funds, uh, maybe the pension funds of people who are listening, such as insurance companies. And these bond issues are managed by the same people who are these enablers, major law firms, major banks, international Western banks. And they issue these bonds for governments. And a few years ago, I was the chief spokesman for the creditors, the bankers actually, who had lent money to Greece. And following the subprime mortgage crisis, Greece was bankrupt. It owed the, through its bond issues, it owed international investors $275 billion. And it couldn't pay. It couldn't repay the debt. It couldn't even service the debt. And so the debt had to be renegotiated or as they say, technically restructured. And I was sitting in all those negotiations in Athens and in Brussels and various other places where the negotiations were taking place and they stretched over several months. And I kept on asking myself, why did the bankers organize such huge bond issues for Greece? I had been to Greece many times before with my hat on as the co-founder of Transparency International to give speeches about corruption and to meet people in Greece who were experts on corruption in Greece. And they all told me that the governments of Greece were terribly corrupt, that wealthy people found it much more convenient to bribe a tax uh, collector than to pay taxes, that uh, the government budget accounts were complete lies, fabrications, because the truth was that the country's major assets were constantly being stolen. And the crisis in Greece, when, which led to the, after the subprime crisis, uh, which led to the renegotiation of its debt, was triggered by the fact that it did indeed emerge that all of the rosy budget numbers that the Greeks had for years been putting out were indeed fabrications. And that the country was hugely in debt and that vast amounts of money had gone missing. And you ask yourself, why did the bankers who arranged those bond issues do their due diligence? Why didn't they find out about corruption in Greece, which was something that you could have asked the local taxi driver about, and he would have informed you well. And the answer is very simple. The bankers get big fees for arranging these bond issues. They are not the investors, their clients are insurance companies, pension funds, and so on. And so these banks keep on getting away with it. They don't do the due diligence. And so right now, we have a horrendous crisis with Russia. And the negotiations are taking place in Geneva. And Russia may invade Ukraine. And one of the ways Russia is putting the squeeze on Western Europe is by not delivering as much natural gas as the Europe, West Europeans need. And the major supplier of natural gas to Western Europe is Gazprom, the state controlled uh, natural gas company of Russia, the largest company in Russia. Many people call it Putin's piggy bank. Gazprom, which is holding Europeans to ransom basically over this energy uh, supplies and which is, part of this whole negotiation that's going on but the, 
this terrible negotiation, this frightening negotiation between NATO and the US and Russia, Gazprom owes Western investors over $100 billion. It has raised through bond issues in yen, in dollars, in euros, um, over $100 billion. And you ask yourself, why have we lent money or allowed money to be loaned to Gazprom, to Russia, that strengthens its hand and, and clearly uh, leads to malicious activities. And those are very serious questions that are not being asked today. Well, and you talked about how Gerhard Schroeder, didn't he go work for them after he left office? Gerhard Schroeder was the chancellor of Germany. That's the equivalent essentially uh, to the US president in German context. He was social democrat and when he was in office, he negotiated the early stages of a deal that would see the building by Gazprom, by the Russians, of a direct pipeline from Russia into German, northern Germany called Nord Stream. As soon as he left government, he was hired by the Russians to become their European representative for Nord Stream. Today, Gerhard Schroeder is the chairman of the Nord Stream Pipeline Group, a Russian group. Mm -hmm. And one of the very big issues at stake right now is uh, there are large numbers of members of the US Congress who are saying the Germans did not allow Nord Stream 2, the pipeline, to become operational because it will ensure that gas bypasses Ukraine, it will weaken Ukraine, and it will add to European dependence on Gazprom and Russia. And the man, the front man for that operation, not, the, not that he has real power, but the front man is Gerhard Schroeder. Mm. And we've seen this time and time again. We've seen top uh, European leaders uh, shilling for uh, leaving office and then shilling and lobbying uh, for awful kleptocrats, terrible people um, who mean us no good, including uh, in the Kremlin. Um, I'm blanking on the guy's name, the guy that dealt with uh, Paul Manafort, um, Russian, you know, what I'm talking about. Deripaska. There you go. He, well, he Oleg, was in, yeah, Oleg, Oleg Deripaska. Oleg Deripaska. Right. Now that well, was in, that was an interesting case too because he had some sanctions against them and then all of a sudden those went away, right? Well, this is a bizarre story. I mean, this yeah. is this is truly bizarre. First Going of all, there. first of all, he's a multi-billionaire, and the U.S. government sanctions him and his company. So then, secret negotiations happen, and uh, the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury under Donald Trump. Uh, decides to lift the sanctions on uh, Oleg Deripaska's company, and the company starts doing all sorts of investments in, amongst other places, Kentucky. And, mm. and nobody quite understands why this was done. Why did he lift those sanctions? And the strange thing is that about three months ago, the Washington, D.C. home 
of Deripaska, although he hasn't been in this country for many years because of the sanctions. But he still has a huge mansion in, in Washington, D.C. And his New York apartment were raided by the police. And the police announced in a big way, we are raiding Deripaska's home. Who knows why? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it, it, we still haven't got an answer why they did that raid. But clearly, something is happening in the U.S. Justice Department that says all those deals with Deripaska and the lifting of sanctions, something dirty happened around there that we are yet to discover. So keep yeah. watching. He'll yeah, be, stay, stay he'll tuned. He'll be back in the news. Don't turn, don't, don't turn that dial. <laughs> no, he'll be back in the news. Oh, yes. He always seems to have, to but, have a way. You know, of he's back. just one of sure. many of these kind of people. Um, the U.S. has been trying for years to extradite a man uh, called Fertash from Vienna. Uh, another one of these oligarchs uh, involved, apparently, in massive, massive money laundering. And the U.S. has been trying since 2013 to, uh, to get hold of him. And he fled to Vienna uh, in Austria. And finally, the U.S. could get him into court on an extradition uh, arraignment. And he was there in the Viennese court. And the judge thought he was being very clever. And he said to uh, Mr. Fertash, until your case is resolved, you can be free on bail so long as you provide us with $175 million in bail money. Can you imagine? Mm. And the next day, the check came from Moscow, $175 million. And he's been out on bail in Vienna ever since. And 18 months ago or so, uh, assistance of Mr. Rudolf Giuliani went to see Mr. Fertash in Vienna. And they said to him, if you can help us get dirt on Hunter Biden in Ukraine, because you've got wonderful contacts in Ukraine, you used to be a minister in Ukraine, you were a businessman in Ukraine, then maybe we can help you to get the extradition charges uh, set aside by the US Department of Justice. And two of Mr. Giuliani's Uh, legal friends in Washington were then engaged uh, by Mr. Fertash for several months to try and help his case here. Uh, Fortunately, they failed. So, you know, when you start looking into these corruption deals and you start to look at the characters involved, and then you start to look at the middlemen, in this case, Giuliani, you start to see a whole world, a parallel universe of finance that is so counter to what America should be all about and so counter fundamentally to our legal, political, and business interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem loyal to any country, you know, that's for sure. Um, just where can you get away from, I guess, who doesn't have an extradition treaty with someone else or something? You know? Yeah, but, don't, but don't, don't, don't you think really that when you have giant American corporations, of course they should be interested in doing what's best for their shareholders, mm-hmm. but don't you think they should also have a sense of operating in the public interest, operating in a way that does not do damage to the United States? Mm-hmm. 
what, what doesn't that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this is a little later in the book, um, the arms industry and how that figures into all of this. Um, well, yeah, sure. yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big that's a big topic, but I mean, I feel like that's if you're talking about ways to funnel a lot of money, <laughs> that's certainly one way to do it. Well, there's two sides to this. The first side is, of course, that there are many big arms deals uh, where the buyer of U.S. weapon systems, notably Saudi Arabia, notably the United Arab Emirates, uh, which are two, uh, I think they're the biggest purchases of U.S. weapon systems. They insist on secrecy of contracts. Mm. And... Uh, we go along with that and there is very little we seem to be able to do if we want those deals and you remember Donald Trump was running after those deals they put everything ahead of uh, anything else in public policy to get arms deals with Saudi Arabia and the UAE if you want those deals you have to do it on their terms so when Yamal Khashoggi Mm. A brilliant journalist was murdered by, by the Saudi intelligence service. And there's no doubt that the Saudis were responsible for that. That did not, for one minute, uh, lead to any hesitation on the part of our White House about the fact that, nevertheless, we still should supply more weapon systems to the Saudis because it's good money and it's a good deal. Um, time and again, it's not just that the deals are secret, but time and again, the U.S. has been willing to support arms sales to authoritarian governments, bad governments, governments that kill and torture their critics, including journalists. We've been willing to sell arms to these countries and set aside all our nice highfalutin rhetoric against uh, corruption and in support of human rights. Uh, the weapons deals time and again come first. And we will never really get, um, get really traction in a lot of this anti-money laundering and anti-corruption world unless we face the fact that our governments are complicit to a degree because they seek commercial operations and the arms industry is a perfect perfect example the other one of course is oil and natural resources mm. yeah poor guy that was a terrible case i can't believe that this is so horrible yeah um but yeah that's impunity that's operating with impunity right because you know like you said you know that they're not going to cancel the contracts over that uh it's just it's too much money sloshing around and and they know that and they they're using that to their advantage to do things they wouldn't otherwise be able to do oh absolutely yeah and i give i give various examples in the book i mean azerbaijan is another one they got a hundred million dollars worth of u.s arms and you ask why is this country which is a total dictatorship by uh, kleptocrats who steal left, right, and center from their people, uh, that is incredibly close to Russia politically. Why are we supplying them with a hundred 
million dollars of arms. And the official explanation that out of the Pentagon is, oh, well, uh, they could support us on the Black Sea against Iran. You know, come off it. It was an arms deal. There was money to be made. The deal was done. The Pentagon and the Commerce Department are all too happy to approve these kinds of deals. It's good for the arms industry. Um, but nobody is really thinking about the real ethical corruption, morale, moral, and political consequences of us arming all these kleptocrats with the latest weapon systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, well, you've got the information warfare too, which leads into the you know democracy chapter and the assaults on our elections and uh, this, you know, the, the troll armies we saw in 2016, the uh, all sorts of, of attempted and actual interference, you know, it, I, th I feel like that's going to get worse over time and the way I see it. I mean, I don't see that going away at all. Uh, it's just, it's such a, such a big risk and, and it's to the advantage of Russia that we be, divided and confused and uh against one another that that weakens us good you know yeah but you know but, but you know just give you an example about that so the senate issues a thousand page report uh early last year on russian interference of the kind you're just talking about in the 2020 election so what does the u.s do it adds a few new sanctions on the Russians, on a few individual Russians. And then it announces that it is going to stop US banks and financial institutions from supporting bond issues. We come back to the bond markets issued by the Russian government. Well, I phoned up somebody on Wall Street and asked him, is this a really serious uh, issue for the, and he said, oh no. He said, the Russian government isn't going to borrow very much. You'll see that the way the language of, of the sanction is written, it does not include Russian state-owned enterprises like Gazprom. So there's a huge loophole. And you ask yourself, well, why time and time again are we so timid? Why do we impose sanctions on a Deripaska and his firm and then lift them? Why do we only impose a sanction on Russian government bonds rather than on all bonds that have the guarantee of the Russian government, which means state-owned enterprises? Why are we so timid about all, the, all, all of this? After all, the Russians don't mean us any good. Yeah, no and, doubt. And there's an answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not as clear in this country as it is in the UK because the Russians are far more visible in the UK as owners of property, hmm. owners of major uh, soccer teams, uh, owners of all sorts of assets. And there's been a British parliamentary report I, I, called Russia where the writers of the report, these members of parliament of the UK have actually said, they're already so deep into our economy, there's really not much we could do about it anymore. 
they have become vital to a vital pillar in our economy. Mm. And and you know that's a horrible admission. It sounds like a really bad place to be. <laughs> that's not good. Well, it, it means that that the UK is only really going to move in the right direction if the US leads and leads very forcefully. Mm-hmm. Then you're because so many of the leading financial institutions today in in London are either American owned or invest so heavily in the US, it is not going to be in the interest of uh, financial institutions in Britain who have huge political influence uh, to do things that run too counter uh, to what the Americans are trying to do. But we haven't shown yet the resolve that is needed. Although I must say, Joe Biden held a summit for democracy uh, in mid-December and announced a whole set of strategies, which if they are implemented and if they're really enforced well, could make a difference, a very good difference. Mm -hmm. Well, that leads into what I was going to ask here. What is the solution then? Is it do we, do we need more laws? Do we need to just enforce the laws that we have? What should people be individual? I guess we talked about that a little bit. Should people be individually held accountable as opposed to corporations? Would that help? What, what's the solutions that you see? Well, let me try and provide a, a, a very general three-part answer. First of all, we have to do whatever we can to change the culture in these financial enabling institutions and the banks so that they start to operate in ways that serve American interests and not just the short-term bonuses of their top executives. So there's a need for pressure on cultural change in these banks. It's gonna be very hard, but there are a number of people from former central bank governors uh, former top bankers, in fact, who are pressing for that today. I doubt if they're going to be successful. One of the people who tried to lead the charge was Paul Volcker, who died last year, um, former governor of the Federal Reserve and a remarkable man. But if we can't get the cultural change, then we need administrative change. That means, yes, we need tighter regulations. We need far more resources to go into the FBI and the bank regulatory authorities and the US Treasury that monitors this stuff to see they have the best computer equipment, the best experts to counter, after all, the criminals. Uh, That means a major increase in budgetary resources to ensure that enforcement is really enforcement that there is meaningful investigation and there's meaningful prosecution. And that takes me to the next point. We need some sort of law that holds the chairman and CEOs of these major enabling institutions, these major banks and law firms, real estate firms, art dealers, holds them personally accountable, criminally accountable if their institutions pursue major criminal actions like money laundering. Now, you may say that that's difficult to do. I agree, 
But after the Enron crisis, when Enron collapsed in 2001 and then WorldCom and other companies because of financial fraud, Congress passed the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, Act that made it a criminal offense if a CEO signed the company's financial statements knowing that they were dishonest. If we could get the top bankers every year to sign the annual report with a statement that says that they personally vouch for the fact that there have been no criminal activities of any scale pursued by the bank, you could bet that the compliance people in those banks would get bonuses. The incentive to behave well would go through the roof. Mm -hmm. So we need some laws to make the bankers themselves criminally liable. And then finally, the third bucket of action, the most difficult of all. We have to reduce the influence of money in our politics. So long as the financial community can exert such influence on our politics through lobbying and campaign contributions, that enables them to ensure that there is weak enforcement and weak regulation, so long will even the best of intentions not lead to a satisfactory resolution of these huge problems. Mm. Yes. Well, I uh, I really, I'm almost done. I, I guess I didn't realize how far I was in your book until I realized everything we talk about. So I, I've read almost all of it. I, I just got like a few by, more pages By the left. way, yes. by the way, let me take you to the last page. Yes, go ahead. Sorry, almost I didn't, I didn't want to spoiler alert the last part of it if you didn't want people well, to know. Almost the last page. <laughs> uh, when I say, you know, reduce money in politics like this, Opinion poll after opinion poll in the US, in Western Europe, and certainly in the rest of the world shows that citizens everywhere have a very, very poor view of their governments. Trust in government is at its lowest level in many, many countries, including the US, uh, than it has been at any time since this kind of polling started uh, in the late 1950s by Gallup. And why is trust in government so low? Because one of the factors is a perception that government, there is too much corruption in government. And I think that perception is due to no small extent to understanding of how much money there is in politics today. And those who pay get access and access means influence. And I think citizens everywhere are disgusted by this. So when I say let's reduce money in politics, I think I'm actually in the mainstream of public opinion. Mm -hmm. Our politicians may not like it, they may not listen, but this is not some crazy idea from outside. It's something that is very much in tune with everything that you, uh, the public opinion polls tell us about the low level of trust in government. And if we want to save our democracy, we have to boost trust in government. Yep. Well, I, I maintain that two of the worst Supreme Court decisions ever were when they said money is speech and that corporations are people. So um, <laughs> those were two bad decisions, according to me. Yeah, but, it, it, but one of the consequences is all the stuff that we've been talking about 
uh, about money laundering and illicit mm-hmm. finance and undermining our real estate market and uh, doing all these dirty deals in the art market and so on and so on. Uh, and you, can't, you have to tie the two together to the big political picture, the threats to our democracy, um, so much money running around in politics, in, in, in politics and public views about real concern about whether government is doing what government pledges to do and should be doing on behalf of all of its citizens. Yeah. Well, uh, I would definitely anyone that's listening, I would recommend reading this book. It's, it's very interesting. I, uh, I was I was a little worried before I picked it up. I didn't know much about the subject. I was like, oh, is this going to be a dry book? No, it's it, there's there's action on every page. <laughs> no, everyone's corrupt, it seems like. <laughs> well, I, th- thank you for that. I, I should just say, you know, uh, for listeners, the book is in two parts, as you've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the narrative is quite short and tight um and for anybody who then wants to really dig deeper into any of the stories that are highlighted in the, in the narrative well there are 40 pages of notes with references right. as to where they can go for all of that material so <laughs> uh the guys who really want to dig deep i think i provided them with lots and lots of reference notes but i've tried very hard to keep the main narrative short and tight um so we don't lose track of why all these things are so closely related to each other. Definitely. Well, um, thank you again for taking all this time this evening. I really do appreciate it. It's very, it's a fascinating subject and uh, yeah, I'd love to talk to you again. I'm sure there'll be something else uh, come up in the news or whatever that would, (laughs) that would relate to what we're talking about. So every day. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Constantly. It never stops. (laughs) Um, But uh, the last, yeah, the last question I asked before we go though, is what music have you been listening to lately? I uh, listen, uh, which will surprise you to a lot of classical music. Me too. Yeah. And one of the reasons is because my late cousin, her name was Susanna Ruzichkova, uh, was a brilliant harpsichord player. And oh, wow. she was the only person ever to have recorded the entire keyboard works of Bach. And I made a movie about her, which you can find on Amazon Prime. It's called Susanna, Music is Life. I didn't mention that part of what I do earlier uh, this evening. No. Wow. So I'm deep into her music and the music of her wonderful late husband, Victor Colobus. And uh, every time I listen to Bach, I think of her. She died at the age of 90, having had a life which started in the concentration camps under the Nazis and then 40 years under communism in Czechoslovakia. She never joined the party. Uh, A remarkable woman. Uh, who taught me to love the work of of Bach. So that's the music I most like listening to. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I know we've been teaching our kids about the the classical uh, period for sure. We've done we've done a lot of that. So that's a lot of fun. Yeah, and the harpsichord is an interesting instrument too. Yeah. You don't hear that much anymore. I guess it's not really a, a modernly used instrument. Well, but... actually, I have to te- surprise you. There are some wonderful harpsichord players today who are 
getting new music composed for the harpsichord. And they are sometimes jazzing it up a bit and trying very hard to revive the instrument so that it becomes a popular instrument again. Interesting. Um, How is it different than the piano, though? Can you play it the same as the piano? Oh, no. No, it's different. uh, You find that, uh, like my cousin Susanna, she she started as a pianist. Uh, And then... Uh, the more she read the works of Bach and Scarlatti and uh, others, she said, it just sounded so different on the harpsichord. Uh, So it's fascinating to take uh, a piece of Bach's uh, keyboard music, listen to a great pianist perform it, and it's wonderful, and then listen to a great harpsichordist perform it, and you'll see both interpretations could be just fabulous but they're very different hmm. the really harpsichord has sort of two keyboards one on top of the other it has lots of plugs it's an incredibly complicated sort of looking instrument hmm. uh, it has a sort of twangy sound but yeah. you get used to it and it's uh, it's beautiful oh definitely well that's really cool well, I'll, I'll search out for that I have Amazon Prime so Susanna um, music is life will do that sounds great. Okay. Well, uh, yes. Well, thank you so much again. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, let's let's talk again soon and uh, have a great rest of your night. Well, thank you very, very much indeed. And thank you for enjoying the book and recommending it. Absolutely. Thank absolutely. You. All right. Well, I'll talk, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.
Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.